0: Okay, I want to introduce you uh, to a concept that I've just kind of started working with. Um, so I'm going to test this some stuff on you guys today. Okay, I told Randall I was like, I got I got some brand new ideas material, but I don't know if it's good or not. So I need <laughs> I need to find out. Um, are any of you familiar with a guy? Um, if any of you studied literature or story in college, you may have been introduced to the work of a guy named Joseph Campbell. Does that no relation to the Campbells who started the Restoration Movement, which birthed the Church of Christ? Are any of you fam, familiar with Joseph Campbell? Okay, I should have known that you were familiar with Joseph Campbell. So Joseph Campbell says that in every civilization, in every culture, you find reoccurring stories. You find similar narratives which people use to make sense of their experience as humans. So you can be among the Aborigines in Australia, you can be in Papua New Guinea, you can be in East Africa, you can be anywhere in the world, and what you will find is that humans create and and pass forward stories in order to make sense of life. Okay, so that's kind of his working premise. Now, another scholar comes along recently, he teaches at Brown University, and he wrote a book i think every christian should read it's called the story it's called storytelling animals and he makes the argument that what fundamentally makes humans different than all other parts of creation is the way that we use stories to make sense of our lives how we talk about our children how we talk about our spouses we all have stories that get told about us in certain friend circles and every time you're in that friend circle they're like remember the time when we were in Canada Josh and we were playing that school and what it was it you or Johnny that snuck at it and no, I'm like no it wasn't me it wasn't I didn't I never broke curve but you have friends who tell the same stories over and over again and it really doesn't matter if they're true because after a while everyone believes it so they just keep telling it and the harder you fight it the more they're like no it is true like you're okay so um, the book is called The Storytelling Animals, and he has a section in the middle of the book um, where he talks about Hitler, and you don't realize he's talking about Hitler because he just refers to this case study as Adolphus. And so he's telling the story of Hitler, who's not German, you know that, right? And he talks about the stories that Hitler had been introduced to in his youth, and how, when you combine the stories that Hitler was introduced to in his youth, coupled with the story he was telling himself about the broken home that he came from, added to the story of being a painter, kind of outsider, renegade, odd duck in his early 20s. Then you add that to the story of how uh, Europe and the United States handled World War I. For our historians, you know how Germany was decimated after World War I, economically and socially. You had all of those different stories, and it's the perfect storm for what created Hitler. Fifty years from now, when we're able to make sense of this, the craziest election, at least in the last hundred years, our storytellers will be able to help us to see how was it possible that you could have the two worst candidates in a free democracy, right? Right now, we're still so in the thick of it. Everything's conspiracy theory, but we will be able to understand. So the premise is simply this. We are the stories we tell ourselves. And all of us tell ourselves stories to make sense of our life. For some of us, it's why we returned back to Christianity or to church or faith. Uh, For some of us, it's why we've clung to our faith. So we have these fundamental operating stories that work at a very deep level that drive everything. Stories we tell ourselves about the person we're married to stories we tell ourselves about our children, stories we tell ourselves about the family that we came from and how my dad treated me or how he didn't treat me. Like we're all just this collection of interpretations of stories that have happened to us. Uh, and by the way, this is why therapists will always have job security because it's very difficult to sort out all these stories and narratives um, and to if, for people of faith to understand, okay, then how does the Jesus story possibly speak to this story about my family, or this story about where I grew up, or this thing that happened to me, because we're like these just collisions of stories, okay? So here's what Campbell says. He says, when you compare all the great stories, from the ancient Greek stories to Huck Finn to C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, when you look at all these stories, here's what they have in common. There is a pattern. And if you want to read a contemporary writer who has made a lot of money because he's very effective at explaining this, Donald Miller... Uh, He lives here in Nashville now. He's an incredible Christian writer. He wrote a book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And he basically is taking Joseph Campbell for modern Christians and saying, here's how you can make sense of your life or your family life. Uh, So Don Miller, uh, Joseph Campbell, all these guys kind of say the same thing, that there is a pattern. So if you think about, and Campbell calls this the hero journey. If you think about the hero journey, I think there's some people who want to get in and just tell them their seats up here. Uh, if you think about the hero journey, we'll we'll take Jesus as our first uh, test case in this. Okay, isn't it awesome when the principal is late to class? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty regular. You got The principal and the teacher. The principal and the teacher are late for class. Like this is awesome. So you got to slip. What, what's the Twitter handle for Nol- Nolensville High School? At Nolensville Night. Bill Harlan I just what? <laughs> Bill, you're going to love this. Okay, So this is called The Hero's Journey. So The Hero's Journey starts with status quo. And if you think about Jesus as we've explored in this class, where was Jesus living as an adult? Okay, Capernaum, where did he grow up? okay we this is like basic if they don't know this by now we're a terrible (laughs) teacher (laughs) okay so he's living this very ordinary status quo life he's a tecton carpenter I think it's stonemason because of sephiris I think you kinda lean that way too I think it could have been both but he is a common average Joe status quo but then Because of the stories that are told about his birth, and we don't know much between the age of 12 and 30 with Jesus. We simply don't know that much. But because of everything I believe his mother had taught him and instilled in him, and everything that he had felt and experienced, his life was moving out of status quo, and he was called to an adventure. Now, again, we don't know exactly the details of the call like we do in a lot of hero narratives what we have in the gospels are the result so jesus is going to start out on this adventure it's called the kingdom of god and he's going to try to teach embody and bring as many people into this thing called the kingdom that he can now in most hero stories again going all the way back several thousand years pre-jesus and even to the stories of c.s lewis and tolkien and i would argue harry potter There's a sage or a wise person who enters the story to be a guide to the hero who's in formation. Now, with Jesus, it's actually kind of difficult. I think Mary fulfills that role. I think the Holy Spirit fulfills that role. I think Simeon and Anna fulfill that role, if you know the Luke birth account. Simeon and Anna are these older uh, members of the temple who prophesy and have this incredible vision about Jesus. But a sage serves as a guy. In the Lion King, who is the, sa- who is the sage? Everyone laughs when this... No, it's Rafiki. It's Rafiki. Yeah. Do you, get, you remember the Lion King? Oh. It's Rafiki, right? Uh, so Simba, is, he has left. He needs guidance for this new calling to go back and claim the kingdom. Uh, Rafiki does a thing where he ducks and then hits him again, hits him again, and we all laugh. But he's the sage. John the Baptist fulfills this role, as Randall talked about last week, kind of the Elijah 2.0. And then there's an embarkment or an adventure. So for Jesus, who never covers more than a piece of geography larger than the state of New New Jersey, just leaving Nazareth and Capernaum becomes his adventure. Now, you can take this model and transpose it on Paul, and it's actually more obvious because Paul then, when he sets out on his adventure, he's going to cover a huge chunk of the known world at that time who was Paul's sage by the way Gamaliel. Gamaliel so as Jesus is going to endure trials literal trial right towards the end of his life but also trials with uh, the religious leaders um, I'll give you the specifics uh, as I was thinking about this hero story and by the way as you're thinking about this think about your own life think about Tennessee football think about the story of Michael Jordan Think about the story of George W. Bush. Think about the story of Barack Obama. Like, this is a grid to help you make sense of all of these different people who have emerged in cultures and society and who have impacted people, okay? So, with Jesus, um, you've got John the Baptist and Mary and the Holy Spirit, Simeon and Anna who fulfill this role of the sage. Then his ministry goes public. This is Luke 4, Mark chapter 1. And then his trial or his endurance, sorry for those of you in the back who can't see, his trials or his endurance are against the Roman Empire and against the nation of Israel. Those are his adversaries. And there's no hero story in the world that doesn't have a good enemy or a good adversary. Okay, Um, and then the approach uh, is the march towards Jerusalem. And both Mark and Luke in their narratives um, outline that. In Luke, it says Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. He knew there was a confrontation or a crisis. In Jesus' life, it ends up being the cross, uh, the crucifixion. So, Philippians 2 actually narrates this whole cycle in like seven verses, if you want to study this later in the week. But Philippians 2, 5-12 through 12 narrates this whole story. He is killed, crucified, buried, and then raised as the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. uh, If you're in first service, that's what we were talking about. His authority comes. That's that's the reward. The result is the birth of the church um, and the movement of the kingdom of God. The ascension is the return home. So In the Gospels, Jesus returns to be... With the Father, and then in John, Jesus breathes new life into the church, the Holy Spirit. And so we're living kind of in between, in terms of planet Earth, we're living between this story. But if you think about anybody who's ever impacted you, any historical figure you've ever loved, Abraham Lincoln, all of our lives follow some kind of pattern like this. And I think when we get in the most trouble in life, or we get into the danger zone, is when we fail to realize that conflict and struggle and heartache and hardship is what makes a good story. You know what a boring story is? And then I moved to Hawaii at age 30, and I lived on the beach for the rest of my life. Who wants to read that story? Who wants to live that story? Okay, for the first six months. And then what happens? It's narcissistic, it's indulgent. Um, uh, Interesting historical tidbit. How many of you are familiar with the Michael Jordan story that he was cut from his high school basketball team? It's not true. It's not true. Sports Illustrated did a whole thing on this when Michael Jordan turned 50. This takes you into the greatness and the psychosis of Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan started telling himself that that's what happened. But the truth is he was a sophomore he wanted to play varsity they didn't think he was ready for it and so they put him on the jv team he told himself he had been cut from the varsity team Um, now there's a really actually tragic piece to this the coach i remember as a little kid there's this best-selling video that went all over the world called come fly with me every kid who's ever loved basketball has seen this video at least 10 times Jordan is telling that story about how he was cut from his high school basketball team and how that propelled him to be great. Jordan was going to be great no matter what. He was just looking for the stories so he could reframe them to himself. So he had to manufacture some of the conflict in his own mind. If you know the story of Tiger Woods, if you know other athletes, this is what they do. They reframe conflict and competition. They think everyone's out to get them because that's what keeps them motivated for the journey. So the coach, who Jordan accused of cutting him, eventually lived a destitute, solitary, depressed life, because he spent like 20 years trying to defend himself in that part of North Carolina. Again, Sports Illustrated did several investigative reports on this. It's a fascinating window into one of the most iconic American uh, characters. It doesn't take away from six NBA titles and his greatness, It does call into question what kind of human being he is but uh, that's that's another class so all of us live in these cycles of adventure and risk and relationship and struggle and hardship and we do it kind of in very mundane ways and we do it in big ways and I think especially for those of us who are parents we cannot cheat or rob our kids of having the drama in their lives that we had in our lives that have helped shape us who we are. Yesterday, they're giving medals to everyone in the Nolensville Soccer League, and I'm like, do we have to give everyone a medal? And the moms are like, yes. <laughs> but I, I feel that internal struggle, like you can't, okay, what, what if half the kids on my team don't need to get a medal? Like, what, what if that's what they need to feel, right? And that's, that's hard. Um I'm much more of a helicopter dad than Carrie is <clears as> a <throat> helicopter mom so I struggle with this too. Um Okay. So, here yes. You pointed out the portion of the story because the intent Michael Gordon intent wasn't to destroy this guy obviously was a product of the, the conversation. That's a debate too. Well, that's true. Cuz he has pretty much destroyed everyone in his life has, including his wife. But I think yeah. Yeah. I think we even do it as, I'll call us normal people, as a yeah. non you know, superstar athletes. Right. Um, we even do it in our own lives, not intentionally in, in that situation. Sure. I in our side, you know, we charge your people unintentionally um, as part of our story. And so those people are also part of the story, not just. Absolutely. Of it. Yeah, preachers do this all the time. Some preachers actually like critics. Oh, yeah? Watch what I do next Sunday. Uh, you know, we do it relationally all the time. Right, I was going to say, and that's what do you think it's the people, it's you know. Absolutely. So um, C.S. Lewis has this great line. Most of you know his story. He was one of the most respected literary critics um, in, in the academic world of, of Western society. He's this elite scholar, agnostic yeah. who eventually becomes a Christian. And one of the reasons he says he became a Christian, I'll paraphrase, but he said, in the story of Jesus, I found the story that makes sense of all other stories. So for him, you didn't have to stop reading Cinderella, or you didn't have to ignore Harry Potter, or you didn't have to distance yourself from all the great stories of the world. He said the reason our hearts come alive to all of these great stories that flood our imaginations is because they point us to the truest story, and that is the story of when God became flesh. In Jesus, So C.S. Lewis is actually one of the first ones who returned kind of Western Christians back to seeing this narrative arc or this narrative circle and understanding um, our lives. By the way, for men, this is why if we don't have a challenge or an adventure, we get into a lot of trouble. Because we're not good at just coasting. We're not. We're not wired to do it. But when we don't have a battle to fight, when we don't have an adventure to live, when we don't have, like, stuff that keeps us up at night, we uh, we go to some really dark places. Um, and that's that usually takes the first six therapy sessions at $135 an hour to <laughs> to learn that. So I'm trying to save you some money, okay? Okay, so here's how Caesarea Philippi, because Randall's probably like, what does this have to do? Here's how... No, no, no. You, I don't trust myself with that. Here's how Caesarea Philippi fits in this. Okay, open your Bibles. We're going to look at some Bible texts. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, you got a hundred Bibles on your smartphone. <laughs> if you have the internet. Okay, 1 Peter 3. We're going to march our way to Caesarea Philippi, kind of understanding the theology of the New Testament. And then I'll bring this back into the conversation. This is verse 18 of 1 Peter 3. Listen to what 1 Peter says. For Christ all, Christ also suffered... Okay, so we're in this part of the story. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Who in former times did not obey, now this is where Peter uh, strays into some very kind of confusing Jewish theology, but this is what he says, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were saved through water, and baptism, which this prefigured now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers made subject to him. So you see this all the time in the New Testament, but he kind of summarizes this whole thing. 1 Corinthians 15, the end of the letter is that. It's called the Regula Fide, the rule of faith. And Christ, in accordance with scriptures, was crucified, buried, and on the third day. So it's a summary of this narrative hero cycle or the hero journey. Uh, now, what's most interesting to me about 1 Peter and We've, I've done some sermons on this over the last year or so when we talked about spiritual warfare. But Peter says, even when Jesus was in his crisis, crucifixion and death, Jesus was still fighting other battles. So we typically think of crucifixion Friday, silent Saturday, right? Resurrection Sunday. Peter says, silent Saturday was anything but In fact, some of our creeds say, and Jesus descended into hell, and I know it's a creed, that's not the Bible, but I'm saying it's inspired by this passage and others like it, that even in the midst of the ultimate crisis, death, Jesus was still fighting other battles. So every point of Jesus' life was filled with conflict. And somehow that conflict was not only shaping Jesus, it was shaping the kind of people who would follow after him. Okay, Does that make sense? Um, Now, I'll do this really quickly, but there's kind of four broad interpretations of what this means when it says he went to preach to the spirits in prison. The first one is from Calvin, uh, not the model clothing company, but the church father, Calvin, who thought that the spirits represented Old Testament saints. Some people have taught um, that the spirits were the souls killed in the flood. Some people have taught over the years that the spirits being preached to by Jesus in prison are fallen angels or demonic offspring. If you're bored this week, read Genesis 6, 1 through 4. I promise you, you will not be able to explain exactly what is going on there with those fallen uh, principalities and powers. Or some people interpret this as the creed does, that the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church still recite to this day, that Jesus literally went to hell. Gehenna. Or sheol are the two Greek words uh, that we have in the the New Testament. So Jesus literally goes to the place where these people or forces or demonic entities have been separated from God. Uh, By the way, this is part of where Catholic theology of purgatory derives from. I'm not saying I believe it, but I'm saying you can trace its roots back to. Okay, if there's a place that isn't quite hell, it's like hell light. Uh, is this part of this kind of intermittent uh, halftime show that people can still be brought back to heaven or they can go on to hell? Like, these are the kind of mysterious parts of these passages where then people try and make sense of them, and you have stuff like purgatory birthed into theology. Um, so, even in his crisis, Jesus is still fighting battles, okay? But what happens in all of this cycle, through Jesus' life, as both Jesus of Nazareth and the cosmic Christ, this very tangible person, but also this celestial being, what happens is the New Testament introduces a a worldview of the world that is often lacking in our imagination. And so let me just say it like this, and this is why the Caesarea Philippi passage is so important. Most of us grew up with a worldview that is categorized by philosophers as a moral worldview. A morality worldview and the morality worldview is good but it's incomplete so the morality worldview basically says this your life is the sum total of the choices you've made pretty good wisdom if you have young kids you start with the morality worldview right like Lucas every day I'm like just make good choices everything else is details man make good choices (laughs) make good choices especially when I'm not looking, make good choices. Here's the problem with the morality worldview, though. The morality worldview assumes that sin, temptation, lust, whatever word you want to use, the morality worldview assumes that all of us, by ourselves, have the power to make good choices in every situation. And if history has proven one thing... It's that all of us are capable of doing incredibly evil things. All of us. Are you with me? Yes? Okay, because I can't move past this point. If you have friends who have done stuff and you say to yourself, I could never do that, what I would say is not true. Anybody given a few details of your life, flipped around, turned upside down, something changes in your life that's fundamental to who you are, a job loss, a divorce, you find out your spouse is cheating on you, you find out your son has a cocaine addiction, Like you change any kind of detail of your life um, and everything can spiral in a way you could not have predicted. In fact, I'm thinking of some of the best TV shows and movies that have been made the last 30 years show us this, we are all capable of incredibly horrible things. This is the paradox of humanity. We're capable of incredible things. And we're capable of destructive things. So the problem with the morality worldview, the morality worldview is like elementary school. Your life is the sum total of your choices. And in many ways, that's true. Our choices do shape our futures and our destiny, our character. It it really does. By the way, this was the primary worldview of Abraham Lincoln. This is why people are always speculating about his religious beliefs, because he was so insistent on good choices and wisdom. But the New Testament is aware of the morality worldview, and you see it in the writings of Paul and Peter, certainly. You see it in the Sermon on the Mount. But the New Testament says, okay, the morality worldview is elementary school, but there is a warfare worldview that takes you into high school and college. Uh, I guess for warfare, women who experienced middle school. You, do you remember those days, seventh and eighth grade? Was it a total war, like it was for my sister? Um, it's a battlefield, right? Seventh grade is a battlefield. Like some of the most demonic things happening in the world are happening in the seventh grade. That's why I hug hug David Knox, our middle school youth <laughs> minister, because he's doing kingdom work. But here's what the world, wor, uh, the warfare worldview says. The warfare worldview says everyone is born into a particular family that you cannot control. Do you agree so far? None of us picked the color of our skin or where we were born. But you are born into a world, planet Earth, that is being contested between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. Now, some of us started to dabble in this when you were in college, like you had a really, like, great campus minister or someone who led your Bible study who started to talk about Did you know that there are real forces of evil in the world and you're like, tell me more about this. I've never, because you've been so ingrained in the morality worldview. Make good choices, make good choices. And then shame enters because you can't always make good choices. You don't. Even when you want to. Paul says in Romans 6, man, all the things I want to do, I don't do, and all the things I don't. He's describing the inadequacy of the morality worldview in Romans 6 as it Relates to the law. But we all have this experience then when you realize you're born into a world where there is a struggle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And that struggle is not just out there in the world, as my grandparents would always say. The struggle runs through you and me and us. And it plays itself out in racism, it plays itself out in greed, in sex, in relationships, in honesty, in integrity, in how you file your taxes. I had someone say, you don't preach on sex enough. And I said, I'm going to start preaching on taxes. He was like, okay, we're good. (laughs) Um, But this is what I love about the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't just believe or teach that this struggle that runs through all of us, it doesn't just believe that the struggle is individual. It's that the struggle is corporate and communal. In churches, churches have seasons where they're doing better resisting evil than when they're not. Cities, I know this acutely because of where I grew up in Detroit. Cities go through these cycles of when the principalities and powers of darkness are being pushed back and when they're not and they're just taking over government. Uh, nations, civilizations. Like So the New Testament has this incredible ability to name that which we experience which, but what is almost unnameable. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against your crazy neighbor who lives behind you or against the Muslims or against... That's not the battle. is against the forces of evil that are at work in the world. Uh, Jesus will say this in the Gospel of John because there is a force in the world that seeks to kill, steal, and destroy your life. So it's not good enough to teach our kids... Oh, you know, uh, Lucas' life is just about making good choices. When Lucas gets older, what I'm going to have to teach him is there are forces in the world, Lucas, that want to destroy your heart pornography, sequel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We are. And one of the things I love about the gospel is it's always calling us out of that. Don't be defined by it. Love what's worth loving about it. Honor what's worth honoring, and then the other stuff. Learn to let it go over time, so you can become uh, more, uh, more fashion But your first question is exactly right. Like, okay, if you're gonna do that, what are your options? Like, what's in the toolbox? Yeah. Yeah. All right. That was a sermon series. That wasn't go but I gotta tell you sometimes yeah. we have uh, yeah. uh, uh, to do councils that Yeah, the it's funny,